This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Thursday, October 28th. Coming up, Missouri is working on redrawing its legislative districts. People involved in the process hope this year, unlike past years, goes smoothly. I think everybody's reasonable and everybody recognizes that uh, the best interests of the state are served by you know, reaching a successful conclusion and having a, uh, a plan of apportionment. And a historically black college in Missouri is one of many that chose to forgive thousands of student loans during the pandemic. But first, some headlines. COVID hospitalizations in Missouri have fallen to the lowest level in months, but capacity at several Kansas City area hospitals remains strained. KCUR's Alex Smith reports. The number of Missourians hospitalized with COVID-19 has dropped below 1,000 for the first time since early July, according to state data. However, COVID hospitalizations remain higher than the lows reached in May after the vaccines initially became available and before the Delta variant surged, and several local hospitals remain at or near their ICU bed capacity. Across Missouri, 80% of ICU beds are in use, which is higher than the national average of 68%. Yesterday, the Kansas City Board of Police Commissioners approved adding another $300,000 to a fund that pays out claims and legal fees against the city police department. The lone vote against the plan was Mayor Quinton Lucas, who wondered why they were using money reserved for staff salaries on outside attorneys. Lucas pointed to Police Chief Rick Smith's numerous complaints that he doesn't have enough officers. And I just don't think that it's a responsible form of expenditure to move something from the salary line item to lawyers and other professional service expenses. Last year, KCPD paid out about $4.5 million in settlements, roughly twice what it anticipated. Claims included excessive force allegations and vehicular crashes involving officers. Earlier this year, 20 historically black colleges and universities decided to use federal pandemic relief funding to forgive debt for thousands of students. Harris-Stowe State University in St. Louis was one of them. The university's interim president, LaTanya Collins-Smith, spoke about the decision's impact on students with KCUR's Brian Ellison on Up to Date. Dr. Colin Smith, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So how did it come to be that that Harris Stowe and a couple dozen other institutions started to put together this plan to forgive student debt? So when COVID-19 happened, um, there was a push from the federal government for funding from CARES Act funding. And basically what Harris Stowe elected to do, we elected to um, develop the HSSU CARES grant in response to the financial debt some of our students had incurred during the COVID-19 pandemic. What we discovered was we had students who were not enrolling for the fall semester because they had incurred this debt. Many of our students were saying they couldn't work, they weren't eligible, they weren't able to work because of COVID-19, they lost their jobs. As a result, they could not make payments towards their balances for the previous semester or the semesters um, and which was impacted by COVID-19. So we pledged to reduce the student account balances resulting from the activity 
that related to the 2020-2021 academic year. And those accounts then reflected a zero balance to enable students to focus on the important work of pursuing their education and continuing to persist through graduation. Wow. So, so specifically, who, who all, how many students were included? Right now, we had about 344 students who were actually impacted by the $330,000. And were all students eligible for this, uh, regardless of their circumstances? All students were eligible. Um, If they had a balance, that was preventing them from registering for the fall semester. Wow. So I wonder, did this actually eliminate all the student debt that these students are carrying? No, it did not eliminate. um, You know, there is uh, this myth that it alleviated student loans, and that is not correct. We did not alleviate student loans. There's uh, if students have occurred balances from student loans, that is something that they will deal with the federal government. What we um, eliminated was the debt that was owed to the university. Mm-hmm. So if a student had a balance, a previous balance from one of the semesters in 2020, spring 2020, fall 2020, and then spring 2021, we assisted our students with the balance that was owed to Harris. So let, let me ask you, uh, students must have been super happy to get this news. Students were extremely happy. Um, We sent out a direct email to those students who were eligible and impacted by this. And immediately we began to receive um, return emails. And and ironically, many of the students thought it was a hoax. And uh, yeah, and so it's like getting a call that you've won the lottery or something. Exactly. And so we had we spent a majority of the, the time, the very first week, convincing students that it was not a hoax, that it was actually Um, it was real. And so we received several letters from parents, also from students, phone calls of gratitude because many of them knew that if they didn't have this assistance, that they would probably have to more than likely sit out a semester or two or stop out in general. Was there a particular student or two who comes to mind that you spoke with for whom this had a really significant impact? I think of um, the very first student um, who had to spend the semester um, at home and could not return to campus. And one of the reasons they did not return to on-campus living was because they wanted to reduce the amount that they owed for that semester. The student um, was impacted by COVID in the sense that they did not uh, get to work. Their employment was impacted by COVID. But not only that, the student lost um, several significant relatives due to COVID-19. In addition to losing a job, having to move off campus, the student also incurred um, financial responsibilities for funeral expenses. And so 
just to have a conversation with that student just about everything that the student had endured um, as a result of COVID-19 and just knowing that you could provide just, you know, a small bit of relief for that student. And, and what was very significant for me is the fact that the student said, I did not know how I was going to finish college. Yeah. And this is, this happens to be the student's very last semester. I did not know how I was going to finish college. And I know that that was one of my grandmother's wishes. And her grandmother passed away because of COVID-19. And so just knowing that you could alleviate um, just a small bit of pressure from a student and, and everything that they're going through was amazing for us. And that yeah. cases like that just kind of helped us to realize that we did the right thing. Well, uh, best wishes to you as your, your interim presidency continues. That's Dr. Latanya Collins-Smith. She's also provost and vice president for academic affairs at Harris Stowe State University. Dr. Collins-Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was LaTanya Collins-Smith speaking with KCUR's Brian Ellison on Up to Date. We'll be back after this message. UMB Private Wealth Management, a division of UMB Bank, takes the time to understand your history, goals, and priorities. UMB tailors financial planning services and resources to help you accumulate, preserve, and protect your wealth for whatever life throws your way. It's all about establishing a customized plan for you so you can focus on the important parts of life, like spending time with family and friends, pursuing your passions, or building a career. Feel confident about your future at UMB Private Wealth Management. Everything we do starts with you. Learn more at umb.com wealth hyphen management. Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Every 10 years, each state redraws the boundaries of its legislative districts, deciding which citizens will be represented by which politicians in Congress and state legislatures. Missouri's process is currently underway, with commissions hearing testimony about what those maps should look like. But not many people who follow the process are confident the commissions will succeed. Jason Rosenbaum reports failure could make for big problems in next year's election cycle. Inside a hotel ballroom that's a stone's throw away from St. Louis Lambert International Airport, members of a Missouri House Redistricting Commission are preparing for a long day of public testimony. The more than four and a half hour session featured comments from people like Joan Hubbard of the League of Women Voters, who accurately described the stakes to the 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats on the commission. We therefore recognize the extraordinary once-in-a-decade impact that redistricting has on the power of voters and on the vitality of democracy in our state. The commissioners heard all sorts of pleas throughout the day, including those who wanted to keep certain neighborhoods together or people like Hubbard who wanted a map full of more competitive districts. There's just one big problem with actually following through on those requests. As a historical matter, most of these commissions have deadlocked and you've had the backup appellate judge commission be the one that draws the maps. That's Travis Crum, a law professor at Washington University in St. Louis. 
Because the Constitution requires votes from at least 14 out of 20 members to approve a House or Senate plan, the commissions have almost always failed. After all, the political parties have wildly different perspectives on what constitutes advantageous redistricting, and there's not much incentive for commissioners to approve an opposing party's plan. Here in Missouri, uh, it's, it's, it's been planned to gridlock. Thus far, there's not a lot of evidence that things are going to change. The House Commission had a notable disagreement over who should be the chair, while the Senate Commission tussled over how many public meetings there should be. But the last speaker at the House redistricting hearing in St. Louis County provided an ominous warning about what gridlock could mean next year. Jim Layton is the former Solicitor General for the Missouri Attorney General's office and handled redistricting litigation for the state roughly 10 years ago. Layton says if the commission's deadlock, it's a near certainty that state legislative districts will not be done in time for Missouri's candidate filing deadline next March. If you are currently operating or you begin to operate or you continue to operate as two uh, caucuses rather than as 20 individuals trying to do the best for the state of Missouri, you will fail. Some of the redistricting commissioners are expressing optimism about the work ahead. But Jerry Hunter, the Republican chairman of the House committee, acknowledged that it's more difficult for his colleagues to come up with an agreement since there's 163 districts to draw and more possibilities for contention. By comparison, Senate commissioners only have to come up with 34 districts. Their task is, appears to be easier than what our task is on the House commission. Because rural Missouri is so Republican compared to past redistricting cycles, there's not really that many places for Senate commissioners to argue about, besides perhaps districts encompassing Springfield and the Kansas City area. Democratic Senate Commissioner Farrakhan Shigog of St. Louis County says he's actually found quite a few commonalities with his rural counterparts that make him bullish about working together. And they're talking about poverty. They're talking about miseducation. They're talking about lack of health care services. They're talking about need for infrastructure repair for roads and sewer systems and things like that. And I say, hey, those are the same kind of things that we have going on on the east side of the state in St. Louis in the urban area. Mark Ellinger, the GOP chairman of the Senate Commission, notes that even though the threshold to approve a map is high, it has happened before. He was on a Senate commission that ratified a map in 2012 under daunting time constraints. I think everybody's reasonable and everybody recognizes that uh, the best interests of the state are served by you know, reaching a successful conclusion and having a, uh, a plan of apportionment. House and Senate commissioners have until December to come up with a tentative plan. If they fail, the appellate judges won't likely finish work on their maps until sometime in early 2022. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Jonathan's story on redistricting in Missouri, visit kcur.org, where you can also listen to a live stream of Kansas City's NPR station. If you like what we're doing here at Kansas City Today, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 816-235-8930 with your thoughts. Tomorrow, we'll hear how a local youth orchestra is introducing music to kids who might not have access to a school band program. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.